Uh, it, is, it is good to see you. It's good to be able to worship together. Um, we are going to continue to look at the hope of the gospel. We've been looking, uh, last week we started looking at the third reality concerning the hope of the gospel, that the hope of the gospel is unshakable. The resurrection shows this to be the case. Remember verse 20, that powerful uh, change regarding, man, if Christ isn't raised, all these bad things are true. But verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We must cling to what truly matters and listen, if the resurrection is not true, then nothing that we are clinging to does matter. Our faith is all about Christ, Christ's finish, finished work on the cross and the empty tomb. That is what all of our hope rests in. So the word but in verse 20, it negates everything evil, everything wicked, everything harmful, everything hurtful in this world. That one single word but in verse 20 it negates all of these things. You see, what we're to do as Christians, where the, the hard work comes in for us as Christians, it's the, the fact that we are to view all of life through the victory that Christ's resurrection has brought. So the hard work in our Christian life is not to be seeking victory, it's to be reminding ourselves of the victory that has already been accomplished. Wow, isn't that kind of a role reversal in our lives? We often view ourselves as the hero, and what does the gospel says? No, we're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. We are not seeking to gain victory. We are seeking to live in the victory that is already ours through Christ. So last week, we saw that the hope of the gospel is unshakable, and we looked at the first reason why the text shows us that the hope of the gospel is unshakable. Verses 20 to 23 showed us that Christ has tasted death and won. He defeated death. As I've already expressed, uh, that verse in verse 20, it shows us that Jesus and his resurrection is our guarantee of victory. Jesus' resurrection is real. And Jesus' resurrection, we talked about last week, is a turning point in history. In fact, Jesus, it says, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In order for Jesus to have been the first fruits, the first one raised from the dead in the sense of bringing in something new. We know Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' uh, resurrection wasn't the first resurrection, but it was the first one that mattered. It was the beginning of the new creation. Jesus has conquered death through his resurrection. He's the first fruits, the first of the new way, of the new creation and in order for Jesus to be the first fruits, he himself had to fall asleep. He tasted death. 
So even as, as we know of loved ones who are dying or who have passed away, as we ourselves think of ourselves as all mortal beings, you know, every year, uh, if you have an insurance plan, you have a wellness check. Yeah, if you're, if you're really honest with yourself, it, it should be called a dying check, right? Because we're all, our, all of our bodies are dying. Isn't that a, de- a depressing thought? You know, we, we, what we want to do in the wellness check is ensure that we are dying well. <laughs> uh, so if, if, you're dep- if you came in depressed, um, uh, don't keep that in your mind because there's good news beyond that because of Christ's resurrection. But we are all in the process of dying. In fact, uh, just at 42, turning 43, Dennis and I were talking this past week how... Uh, I'm, what, a, a year older than Dennis, but we're both talking about how we're starting to feel things more. Um, and, and I heard it doesn't get any better. I don't know. Maybe you guys can tell me, who are, those of you who are past 43, um, but you start to feel stuff more. Well, Jesus partook of even death so that he could be the first fruits, the one who conquered death. And Jesus is also, we saw from verses 21 to 23, the new Adam. That just like Adam was our representative, and Adam fell, and therefore we all are born sinners, so Christ now is our representative. And for everyone who has placed their faith in Christ, we are no longer under the dominion of what the old Adam brought, we are no longer characterized by the old Adam, but by the new Adam. We're going to hear more about this new Adam in the weeks to come. And he has brought, verse 23, it says, talking about being made alive, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The word then is the period uh, in between the first fruits and the word then is the period that we're living in right now. We are awaiting the coming of our Lord and Savior. As we sang this morning, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. That has been the cry of the church for the past 2,000 years. We know the book of Revelation says, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. It doesn't seem like soon to us, does it? But as the Psalms say, a thousand years is that's but a day with the Lord. We are eagerly await His coming. And, and I asked you at the end of last week, we concluded with the question, how are you living in the time between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return? That's the question of the day, isn't it? Well, this morning, we're going to continue in this passage by looking at two more reasons why the hope of the gospel is unshakable. We looked at Christ's coming, and now we're going to even zoom the telescope to look even further out to look at the completion of all things And even in that, we find even more hope. As a Christian, the best is always yet to come. 
My dad uh, w- would always say that um, uh, when he was pastoring. That was like his tagline. But, and it really is true. As a Christian, the best is always yet to come. The, the worst thing I hate is uh, uh, the, the post-blues of something you're looking forward to, whether it be after Christmas uh, don't really, as a kid, it was after birthdays, not so much now. It's maybe the pre-birthday blues. Um, but um, whether it's a vacation or whatever, there's always that kind of low point after the thing you're looking forward to. But in Christ, the best is always yet to come. And we're going to look at that in this passage today. We're going to see two more reasons why the hope of the gospel is unshakable and, and as we do that, let's pray. Father, I just ask for your grace, because I have the privilege to declare your word today. Lord, would you use your word to encourage us, to convict us, to challenge us? Uh, Lord, your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, there may be things that the Holy Spirit puts on hearts today um, that are indirectly related to, to what we're talking about. But Lord, we ask that your spirit would indeed be at work. Father, would we be sensitive? Would we give you freedom to be at work in our hearts would you, take up, would, you, would you take all of the, the static from our minds of all that fills our minds, all the cares, the concerns, the busyness, all of these things, Lord, and would you calm us? Would you still us uh, before your presence? In Jesus' name, amen. Reason number two, that the hope of the gospel is unshakable. Reason number one was Christ has tasted death and won. And from verses 24 to 26, we see reason number two, that the hope of the gospel is unshakable, is that Christ is the victor over every enemy. So we already saw the big picture in verses 20 to 23, that Christ has tasted death, he rose from the dead, he has won. But now we're going to look more narrowly at the victor and the enemies that Jesus does indeed overcome. And I just want to read verses 24 to 26. You can follow along. Actually, I'll start in verse 23 to keep the, this uh, part going. It says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ... Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And isn't that interesting, as as Paul highlights death, the very topic here of conversation, what happens to the dead saints. We see Christ's victory over death. So let's look at this idea that the hope of the gospel is unshakable because Christ is the victor over every enemy. We f- I first of all want to draw your attention to the timing of this great victory. 
It says, then comes the end. That word end there is dealing with the finality of one thing, but yet it's not just that. It is also the beginning of something far greater. The end is the completion, the consummation of all things that gives way to eternity. The only other time that this word end is used in 1 Corinthians is in chapter 1 and verse 8. You can turn there if you'd like. You can listen on as I read it. But it's interesting that the word end is used in the context, once again, of Christ's second coming. In chapter 1, verse 8, Paul tells the Corinthian church, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the promise. Here's the the good news. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've talked about before, the Corinthian church, from a human perspective, perspective is anything but guiltless. I mean, look at all the stuff that's going on in the church. But Paul tells them, if you are clinging to the gospel, God himself through Jesus will sustain you to the end. You will indeed be a part of the spotless bride of Christ. That's our destiny. We cannot separate eternal joy, eternal bliss, eternal satisfaction apart from Christ, apart from his coming again and our waiting for that day, our persevering in light of even hardships for that day. You see, the end here is but the beginning. It's the end of the fallen order as we know it, and it's the beginning of the fullness of all that is perfect and lovely. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about eternity. Then comes the end. want to also, as we talk about the timing here, um, specifically look at verse 23 or excuse me, verse 24, we've already looked at the word end, but I just want to draw your attention to the word then. Then comes the end. Then is kind of denoting an order of events. We, we see the word then also in, in the previous verse, verse 23, then at his coming. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, these are two different words for then, but they're very similarly related So we see somewhat of an order here. We see Christ is raised from the dead. Christ comes back. And as he comes back, he brings with him the completion of all things. What that completion is, we're going to look at in our text. Now, individuals, as I'm sure you are well aware, good Christians disagree as to um, some of the particularities of end-time events. Some individuals will say, well, the word then 
Because there is an indefinite gap of time between the first fruits and his coming, verse 24 indicates that there will be then another gap of time between his coming and then the, the ushering in of eternity or of the new heavens, the new earth. And, and in between that time of Christ's second coming and the end would be what's referred to as the millennial kingdom or Christ. Uh, Christ is reigning and ruling in heaven. We would all agree to that. Uh, but, they, uh, but then individuals will say Christ will then rule and reign physically here on the earth. Other individuals will point out that the, that, that word then doesn't necessarily have to denote a long period of time. It could be a logical progression that when Christ comes, he's going to come, and then he brings in the new heaven and new earth, eternity. This passage um, doesn't really speak into supporting either side of the equation. Um, that is for uh, looking at different texts, and good Christians disagree. The thing that we need to remember here is that Christ is bringing with him the fullness of all things. The then is coming. So we look very quickly here at the timing. I also want us to look at Christ being the victor over every enemy. I want to look at the actual victory itself. What does verse 24 continue to say after that first phrase, then comes the end? It says, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after, and get this, this is so beautiful, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. As we look at the victory that Christ brings, Christ will have complete victory over every enemy of God. None are left out. The victory over every enemy of God. I've been reading through the book of Joshua and seeing how God went ahead of the Israelites and provided victory. And, and, and Jesus is that greater Joshua who is bringing his people into the promised land. The one thing that the Israelites failed to do was to destroy every enemy. They, they left pockets of Canaanites in Canaan. And what happened? You get to the book of Judges, and those pockets, they, they start to cause trouble. And the people, they go after these foreign gods, and God actually uses those pockets of people to, to bring judgment on Israel, to wake them up. You see, Joshua's victory, the people's conquest into the, the, the physical promised land, is but a picture of the, the greater conquest that Jesus has achieved. And in Jesus' conquest, every single enemy is defeated. Every one. 
I'm not sure what all of the uh, floating things going around the country is right now, but uh, it's, it's a reminder that there's many enemies, right, of thinking of, of our country. There's many threats. But look at what verse 24 says. Every rule, every authority, every power. This isn't just dealing with earthly enemies that oppose God and his will. We know Psalm 14, um, the, uh, or Psalm 110, we're going to look at that. And it says that God laughs at the rebellion of mankind. But even more specifically than human rulers and powers and authorities, uh, what this verse is talking about is spiritual powers and rulers and authorities. Every single rule and every authority and power, both earthly and spiritual, will have an ultimate demise. In fact, the book of Ephesians talking about God's power that raised Christ from the dead. I'm going to read to you the, um, some of this, and then we'll have another part on the screen for you. But it says, talking about God's power, it says, the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, it says, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see, Jesus has already secured victory through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He is already the victor, but the ultimate victory is yet to come. We are more than conquerors through Christ... Because of that victory that has been secured through Christ. But the final victory is not yet accomplished. That is going to come, according to our text, at Christ's coming. Not only this, every rule and every authority and every power. But look how the, the scriptures describe this in verse 25, for he, speaking of Christ, must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. How many of you like feet? Anybody like feet? You know, for somebody to put their feet in your face is kind of humiliating, right? It, 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 it kind of gives a... Uh, 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 a feeling or a sign of subjugation. I mean, somebody puts their feet in your face, they're not doing you a favor, right? This is a loaded phrase in the Scriptures. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 110, verse 1, David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There we have the foot language. All of the enemies are placed under Christ's feet. And what does God say? David says this and David realizes he's speaking, yes, according to the promises that God gave David, but he knows there's a greater David yet to come. That there will come a day when all enemies 
will be placed under the anointed one's feet. In Psalm chapter 8, David writes this, speaking about the wonders of man. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. And again, this is, this is a, a, a psalm that ultimately points us to Jesus as Messiah because we know that God did give dominion to man and man failed, so there has to come a greater son of man that will achieve ultimate dominion and have all things be put under his feet. That's Jesus. And all of this feet language takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3. And you're familiar with Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is where all of this under the feet language comes from. That Christ will have final victory over sin and sorrow and hardship and death and all of those things that are a result of the curse of sin. Did you know that the very things that you're struggling with today, that you're discouraged with, that you're depressed with, that, that, that you're battling, those things are ultimately defeated foes because Christ has conquered sin and death. All of those effects of living in a broken world as a broken person, dealing with broken relationships and broken circumstances and, and broken bodies and all of those things, those things will come to an end. No matter where we are at in life, the beginning phrase of verse 24 can give us the greatest comfort, then comes the end. Whatever it is that we're facing right now does not have the final say. If you are in Christ. All of Christ's enemies will be placed under his feet. This is the victory that Christ has accomplished. Amen? And then one day, as all of Christ's enemies are, according to verse 25, they've all been put under his feet, we see that Christ's work will be complete. So Christ has accomplished our salvation that is sealed, that is, that, is, that is determined, that is a reality. But Christ's work is not yet complete. His saving work is complete. There's a reason he's seated at the right hand of God, because he is ruling from God's throne in heaven, and he is seated because the work is done. But he is still accomplishing the finality of the victory that he has already secured. 
Verse 25, again, he, uh, he must reign until. So that word until means that there's going to be some type of a change. In verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying, and again, in 1 Corinthians and throughout the New Testament, that word destroying talks about an ultimate end-time destruction. So we see something's going to change here. And what happens, according to, we see in verse 24, the kingdom is handed to the Father. He delivers the kingdom to God. When does this happen? This happens upon the completion of the redemption of all things. I want to read for you uh, Colossians 1, verses 18 to 21, that, that gives us here a similar idea, talking about Jesus once again. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, there you see again, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile, that's through Jesus, to reconcile to himself. That word himself is kind of vague, but it seems to be referring to God, the Father. So through Jesus to reconcile to the Father all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he do this? He made peace by the blood of his cross. So the, uh, the cross work of Jesus has brought reconciliation. And one day when every enemy has been defeated, when the curse of sin is lifted, then something new happens. It says the kingdom is then delivered to God the Father. And then in verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So this gets really confusing, doesn't it? So what's Paul talking about here? And these are things that are, that are from the infinite plan of God and, and we only get a taste of of understanding the depths of these things. But what Paul is saying here is that Christ, there is going to come a day when Christ's functional role will have achieved its ultimate purpose. You may say, what do you mean his functional role? What role within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, did uh, does Jesus, God the Son, have? Well, according to our passions, passage in Colossians, and according to what we're reading here, it is to subdue what Adam failed to do, to subdue all things, and to undo what Adam did, to reconcile all things to himself. That are both, uh, that means both a people. Those whom God has, has chosen to be his own for Jesus to, to pay the, the, the cost of sin and to bring those people to the Father and to reconcile also 
all of creation that is under the curse. To reconcile all things to himself. That work will be completed. And when the work of reconciliation is fully and finally completed, he then hands to his father this completed work, this kingdom. This kingdom, regardless of of a timetable that you are looking at, whether that kingdom is completed at the end of a a thousand-year period of a reign of Christ or whether that period is completed after a a heavenly reign of of Christ and Christ comes down and, and ushers in the new creation, there will come a day when reconciliation is fully and finally completed and the Son's functional role within the Godhead to reconcile everything back to the Father is done. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, so does that mean Christ will not reign any longer? Because it says in verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that's where you kind of, again, we we maybe don't understand perfectly everything, but we put Scripture together. And we remember passages like Daniel 7 and verse 14, talking about the coming Messiah. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an what? Everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 11, verse 15, um, the heavenly voices cry in heaven, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So what we are talking here is not that there comes a time and we're going to read more about this in the, in the next few verses, there's not going to come a time where somehow Jesus is diminished. But his reign is going to be, to be different in function than what it currently is. Right now, he is fulfilling the reconciliation of all things to himself. There will come a day when his reigning over this kingdom, this earthly temporal kingdom, will come to an end and the eternal kingdom now comes in. And Christ's reign over this earthly temporal kingdom, his reign over this temporal kingdom will be completed and will come to an end. But for all eternity, God the Father and his Son will be exalted together. One person says this. Verses 24 to 28 reflect a picture of a dominion that's gone astray and needing to be crushed so that the proper dominion might be restored. The general idea would have been familiar to anyone in the Roman Empire. 
Just as a Roman emperor would send out his leading general to put down seditious movements and rebellious vassal states and restore the emperor's authority throughout the empire, God has sent Christ to subdue all rebellion and opposition, to destroy all the enemies of God's kingdom, and to restore all of creation to its proper submission to the Father for His glory and the good of all creation. We see here in that example the functional reigning and reconciling of Christ. Now before we move on from this second reason why the gospel, the hope of the gospel is unshakable, Christ, and that is because Christ is the victor over every enemy. We've looked at the timing. We've looked at the victory. I want us to look in verse 26 at the final enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There will come a day, folks, when death will be no more. What is the ultimate manifestation of sin? It is the reality that sin has brought death. Back in the garden, it brought spiritual death immediately and ultimate physical death. And again, going back to a cosmic scope, Romans 8 says all creation groans under the curse of sin, waiting for the deliverer to come to free even creation. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Folks, the ultimate enemy, death, will be destroyed. And when death is destroyed, we know that sin's fingerprints will no longer be on individuals or in this world world. And that last phrase I think we need to take note of, for the Lord has spoken. Are you remembering the spoken word of God today? Are you trusting your feelings? Are you trusting your own perspectives? Or are you trusting the spoken and now for us the written word of God? Well, there's one final reason why the, in this text why the hope of the gospel is unshakable. We've already looked last week. Christ has tasted death and won. We saw also that Christ is the victor over every enemy. And then in verses 27 to 28, the hope of the gospel is unshakable because God is all in all. Look at what verse 27 says. For God has put all things in subjection 
And there's that phrase again, under his feet. So it is the son who is the conqueror, but we see from Scripture, and even from Psalm 110, it's actually the father who puts these things in subjection under the son. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Do you get the idea after, uh, after reading verse 27, the importance of that word subjection? Folks, if Christ isn't the risen, victorious Savior who will win, who has won, and who will, we will see the ultimate victory, the fruits of that victory in the future, if that is not true, then there's no hope. This has to be true. God has given his son dominion. He puts all things under his feet. And then, of course, it says there, except for himself, for the father. And then in verse 28, it says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Why? So that God may be all in all. Again, can be a confusing passage, confusing verse. What is this saying in summary? God is all in all, and we see this because the Son, as we have already talked about, will complete the role assigned to him to the glory of God. Jesus has finished and is finishing what he has started. What what does the author of Hebrews say about Jesus? He is the author and he is the finisher. Jesus in the book of Revelation says, I am the beginning and I am the end. The Son will complete the role assigned to him to the glory of his Father. In the book of John, Jesus repeatedly says, I come to show you the Father. I bring glory to the Father. How do you bring glory to the Father? By seeing and believing I am who I say I am. Again, the Son's functional role in redemption is to restore all things to God. He is the greater Adam. And then when that role has been done, the text says here in verse 28, the Son himself, in that functional role as the deliverer, as the reconciler, will subject himself to the Father as well. Note that this is a functional term. In other words... He presents all of this to the Father for His glory. This, is, this does not mean that somehow the Son is less than the Father. That's heresy. We know God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, uh, they are all equal in who they are in their essence. We have to note that 
Christ brings the Father all glory, while at the same time, Scripture tells us, it is the Father who exalts the Son. So for all eternity, in the eternal kingdom of God, you have God the Father receiving all glory, and He exalts His Son for all eternity. The two go hand in hand. What is the ultimate aim of the Bible? What is the ultimate theme of the Bible? It is God's glory through Christ. And we see that for all eternity. As we close, I want to ask you a question. If this word subject, subjection, is so important, I want you to turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to ask you two closing questions. I think we see in chapter 3 a very complementary passage to what we have just read. In verse 21, Paul writes this, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. And again, talking about divisions, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Here we see that that, that relationship that even flows from, from the Trinity of, of the functional roles of the Father sending the Son, the Son reconciled, reconciling and bringing glory to the Father and the Spirit who, who is, is um, empowering the Son during His earthly ministry and who is at work in our hearts today. Question number one I want to ask you based out of verse 21. If Christ is the hero of the story, if Christ is the victor, who would we dare to boast in today? Maybe today you'd say, Pastor Adam, I'm boasting in myself. I'm acting like I'm the hero. I'm, like, I'm acting like I'm the reconciler of all things. Man, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm acting like my spouse, or I'm acting like this friend, or, or whoever it is. I'm putting my hope in other things. Maybe it's an inanimate object. It's not even a person. And what that is an, an indicator of is that we are blinded to the hope that is ours. I mean, Paul, Paul says here, why are you going to put yourself under men when we know that in Christ, in our eternal inheritance, all things are ours? I mean, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, uh, they're just working to, to show Christ to you. The world, 
I mean, this world is temporal. Christ is bringing in something so much greater. Life, death, we already know that Jesus brings life. Death will one day be abolished. The present or the future, our hope doesn't lie in the present. We can't determine some type of future on our own. But all of these things have been given to us through Christ. And we see here even a picture of submission between God the Father and God the Son. That's what we see in our text in chapter 15 as well. So question number one, who are you boasting in today? And question number two, when we see this picture of equality between God the Father, God the Son, yet we see functional submission of the Son to the Father, can I ask you how well you are submitting to Christ this morning? Trying to go your own way? To make your own decisions? To pave your own path? Folks, without Christ, we are hopeless, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. I would dare to say, whoever it is or whatever it is you are boasting in answers question number two, who are you putting yourself in subjection to? Folks, we must cling to what truly matters. And that is the hope that is found in the message of the gospel. There is not hope in any other way. Today, maybe for the first time, will you turn to Christ, turn from yourself, turn from your sins, look to Jesus as your only hope. Say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. I'm tired of going at it my own, trying to be my own Savior. I turn from my sins, I look to you and the righteousness that you have provided. For those that are believers here today, Maybe for the umpteenth time, not maybe, I know, we need to once again look to Christ at what he has accomplished for us, what we have in him, and knowing the best is yet to come. Staking our lives and our future on that and refusing to let lesser things take an improper place.